On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be talking with Mike Mikuluk, who is the vice president at United Way of Halton and Hamilton. He's a professor at McMaster about all kinds of stuff, about food shortages, about recycling, about Disney putting warnings on its movies. Oh, and about living in a yurt, of course, because why wouldn't we? Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. It is time to launch into what we like to call the brightest conversation in Hamilton radio. And we love getting different new voices from different parts of the city and different points of view. Uh, Tonight, I think we've done that. I I really think we've done that. Um, Mike Mikulak is an adjunct professor at McMaster in the Sustainable Futures Program. He's the vice president of community impact at United Way, Halton and Hamilton. And if you read his Twitter handle, He is an author, he is a teacher, he is a researcher, he is a farmer, he is a cyclist, and he is a word that I have never seen before, a locavore. Mike, thanks for doing this today. Thanks for joining me. Hello. How are you tonight? I'm very good, very good. Enjoying the nice weather right now before it starts getting uh, cold. Absolutely, absolutely. So let me ask you this. I have heard of herbivores and I've heard of carnivores and I've heard of omnivores and I've probably heard of a few other vores. I've never heard of a locavore. What's a locavore? A uh, locavore is someone who eats uh, food that's, uh, that's, that's primarily grown around them. So I'm actually sitting in my backyard. I live just outside of uh, Mount, I live in Mount Hope, so just outside of Hamilton in the Glenbrook area on about an acre. And uh, I'm actually sitting in a yurt that I built for my kids as a kind of a COVID pandemic panic uh, sort of project. And uh, it's just outside of a very large garden that I use to feed my family. So I try to eat locally where, where possible. Okay, first of all, I will say this. Congratulations. You're the first person we've ever spoken to who was sitting near a yurt while we've been on the show. So you, you win that competition. First yurter to, uh, to ever make it onto the air. Um, but, but the locavore idea, so what would be, I mean, besides your own yard, because obviously people can plant a garden. And I was hearing um, Sylvain Charlebois, who's the, the food professor from out, out east who we have on the show with some regularity, wrote something the other day that many, many, many people, the number of people starting their own gardens during pan- the pandemic has gone through the roof. Like this is a, a thing that people are doing now for obvious yeah. reasons. But other than that, Mike, what, what is it in this area that you would be able to get, that you'd be able to, to turn into your locavore lifestyle? Oh, I mean, so many things. I mean, we're sort of blessed. Um, I'm originally from Winnipeg, so I'm used to sort of deep, cold winters uh, where really you're stuck with potatoes. But uh, here, I mean, really, I mean, we have a, we have an incredible climate with lots of things that can be grown. And especially nowadays with the, the, the amount of options that are available out there. I mean, there's everything. You can get local quinoa. You can get oats. You can get wheat. I mean, of course, all the different kinds of meats. Uh, there's fruits, uh, you know, all sorts of different things. So really, I mean, the options are pretty incredible. And as you said, a lot of people nowadays are starting their own gardens and food security is really important. I mean, it's certainly something that at the United Way, we're always conscious about how, how to support food security in the community. And one of those ways is to grow some of your own food and to really sort of be engaged in, in, uh, in that local food system. One of our neighbors in the last year or so, we live in a, with a backyard that has a hill in the backyard and he does as well. And he has leveled off like steps of his backyard and made this gigantic garden. I don't even know what all he's growing back there. I assume it's all legal. Um, <laughs> but, but nonetheless, I, I, I looked at that and I went, you know, 
again, with COVID and everything else and people worried about food and wanting to save money and not wanting to go to grocery stores. And I'm, I'm not at all surprised that this is becoming something that people are doing and not even as a hobby thing, because I mean, Mike, I, I have, there is no green in my thumb at all, but I've thought about doing it just for the sake of not as a panic. I don't think it's as a panic, but just, you know, it's something to make one less trip to the grocery store now and then. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I think in general, what COVID has done is kind of like kind of pulled the pulled the blanket up and sort of revealed a lot of these big structural issues that, uh, you know, as a society, we've sort of kind of ignored and taken for granted. So, you know, when when COVID hit and we were all scrambling for toilet paper and trying to figure out all these different things, you know, we were we were, I think, all reminded how precarious a lot of things are and whether it's our food system or your jobs or you know, just being able to send your kids to school. You know, a lot of us take for granted how much goes into keeping our societies running. And, and you know, I think this is the importance of, uh, you know, of, of an organization like the United Way, that we provide a bit of that social safety net. And I think people are realizing, you know, how incredibly precarious that is, how close many of us are to not really having food on our tables, you know, and, and starting a garden smart, you know, for a lot of people, I think it's a way to regain, you know, maybe you're not going to grow all of your own food, but you get a sense of control and you get a sense of, of sort of, uh, empowerment because of that. I, geez, I hope we don't have to grow all of our own food. I mean, I, in my life, I think I've been able to grow tomatoes once, uh, I I'd be starving pretty fast. And if, and I like tomatoes, thankfully, but that would be it. It would be tomato, everything, but yes, it, it, it's, and one other thing about this, which, you know, the locavore idea, uh, and again, I love the word because I never heard it before. Um, th- there are obviously, um, building and housing and everything is spreading. So we don't see as many farmers really up close. Yeah. But there are a bunch of farmers around here that really could use the help as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, for me, that was a big part of it when I started doing it. It started when I was doing, um, I was doing, I was at Mac um, doing my PhD. And I started really sort of trying to understand the local food system. You know, like, like many people, I didn't grow up farming. I didn't grow up growing anything. But I really became interested in that as a way. And, and for me, doing, I did a 100-mile diet for a full year. And really, it was just a way to kind of get involved in the local food system and sort of really understand what's going on around us. And I think, you know, people are yearning for that kind of connection right now. They're trying to figure out how to do that, how to, you know, for a lot of people, even volunteer opportunities have sort of started to shrink. We've certainly seen that with a lot of our organizations that we support. So food banks that typically rely on volunteers. Uh, now can't accept them. And so people are looking for connection with their, with whether it's, you know, their local food system or just their local community, the way to show that, um, that care and respect for the community around them. We've got to take a very quick break here, Mike, but does the 100-mile diet include McDonald's and Subway as long as they're within 100 miles you can eat there? <laughs> uh, no. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Joined this week by Mike Mikulak, who is the an adjunct professor at McMaster in the Sustainable Futures Program. He is vice president of Community Impact at United Way of Halton and Hamilton, which we will get to. We're going to talk United Way and charities a little bit later in the show. But Mike, the um, the number one story, I think it's not even close, this week in Hamilton has been the outbreak that we've seen at this spin place downtown, Spinco, and 
dozens and dozens of cases of people getting COVID. And some people are familiar with this story. Others are not. That That's the background that there was, I say, an exercise place, a spin class. And um, a bunch of people have now tested positive. But here, here's my question for you. I, I'm listening to this and I hear a number of people taking the position that somehow this is a failure of government. This is a failure of the owners. This is a failure of this and that. I'm looking at this going, Mike, if you in the middle of this pandemic decided that you were going to go to a spin class, I, that's fine. That's fine with me because they've taken precautions. But somewhere along the way, you have to be responsible for your own decisions and not always turn around then. And when something goes wrong, point fingers at someone else. Am I way off or, or is it time for people to be a little more responsible and say, I'll accept consequences if they happen? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I think it's, you know, I think one of the things with this pandemic is, you know, we're, we're what, seven, eight months into it at this point. And I think what this is really showing is that people are confused. People are trying to regain a sense of normalcy. They, you know, the messaging around some of these things is sometimes a little bit confusing. And, you know, I think it, you know, I think all of us are just trying to, trying to muddle through as the best as we can. And when it comes to something like this, you know, personally, you know, I, I, I love to exercise. I run every single morning. I, I bike. I've chosen to keep that outdoors for the most part. And, you know, I would say that for me, that's, you know, that's just my own sort of safety tolerance for that. But I understand why some people would want to would want to get back to that. And and and, you know, as, as much as, you know, I think I agree with you, you know, we have to take responsibility for our own actions. I think what this also reveals is sort of a way in which all of us also have to take responsibility, a sense of the common good and what it means to sort of, you know, potentially impact other people around us. Right. So when we make these choices, you know, if we make them, then maybe we have to make sure that we're also really cautious around the people around us, because the choices we make impact everybody around us. So for it's, sure. It's, it's tricky. For sure. And, and look, I, I've said it on the show here before, uh, whether or not, y- not you personally, Mike, but you, the greater you, whether or not you believe in wearing masks or think that it's a giant conspiracy, whatever, it doesn't matter. The reality is, as a courtesy, since there are so many people who do believe in it, to me, it's a courtesy that you go out and you wear a mask. Even if you don't think you should, it's just part of being part of a civilized society right now. They're not asking you to you know, do something horrendous. It's wearing a mask. This one though, um, and by the way, I want to stress that I'm not saying that the people who went to this place are idiots or bad people or anything. They made a decision to go to a spin class. From what we've heard, the owners of the place and the managers did everything according to protocol. The protocols that the government have handed down is what the government and doctors believe to be the right thing. So if something goes awry, to me, you have to just look and say, you know what, I'm going to live with it because I decided to go knowing there was some element of risk and I can't turn around now and point at someone else and say, you should have protected me. You made a decision. It was fine, but now live with that decision. Yeah. Yeah. And I think all of us just have to do our best to sort of look at the guidelines. And, you know, I think, again, I think this is really confusing for a lot of people and, you know, there's a lot of very smart people out there who know a lot more about this than, you know, than I do for certain. And, and, you know, I, I really just try to follow the best evidence that's out there. And, you know, there's a lot of people that, um, you know, 
that know a lot about this virus and they're trying to do the best and we're learning every day, right? I mean, I think, I think that's, that's the key is that these scientists and these public health experts are learning every day and we just have to sort of, you know, I think trust that they're, that they have our best interest in mind. And like you said, we take risks every day. We choose, we, we make yes. decisions uh, like yep. that and we do have to accept those responsibilities and, and really try to uh, balance that out as best as we can. You have two daughters, correct? Yes, I do. Yep. So we have Halloween coming up and there's lots of discussion right now about whether or not we should, kids should be going out for Halloween or something. Uh, ultimately, when you make a decision about your daughters, yes. if you decide to go out and then something happens to me and I, like I, I'm touching a wooden crossing my fingers that it doesn't, but that would be then if something were to happen and one of them was to get COVID, that would be a responsibility, something that you would have to accept to me, as opposed to saying, well, the government didn't tell me specifically I couldn't go. And, and, and I'm just thinking, and it's not even necessarily about this spin place. It just seems to me too often now that we're hearing people turning around when an outbreak happens or something, and immediately it's the government or the school board or a trustee or a counselor or a mayor or whomever. It's just, it's too easy right now to blame someone else. And I don't think that a lot of the people in those positions really know either. They're, they're, they're guessing as much as we are. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, they're guessing, I mean, these are educated guesses. These are often evidence-based and, but I mean, I think this is a moving target, right? And that's absolutely, that, that is, that's the difficulty with anything like this is that all of us are trying to, you know, this is an unprecedented historic event, right? We will be writing about this for hundreds of years. And I think all of us, you know, the Halloween piece, that's a great example. You know, I've been struggling with that. My two daughters, you know, they've been asking for the last month whether or not we go. And now the, the information is coming out saying, yes, it can be done safely, you know, take the precautions, do all of that. And, you know, we are very likely going to take our daughters out for Halloween in that. And we think that on balance at this point that, you know, when it comes to, like, like, like you know, the at this point, the pandemic isn't just about the sort of physical risks. It's also about the mental health risks, right? I mean, the stats that are coming out right now about the impact on children's mental health, a lot of the services that we're providing right now, that's where we've seen the biggest increase in demand in our community has been around these kind of mental health services where we've seen, you know, parents are struggling. Families are struggling. All the normal activities, those after-school programs, you know, the gymnastics classes, the piano classes, all of those things that have been canceled. We underestimate how important they are in maintaining that kind of mental health of, of, of kids. And so on some point as a parent, as a society, we do have to make decisions that are going to balance out that kind of short-term physical risk with the long-term mental health risk. And you know, who am I to say what's right or wrong? You know, I try to listen as much as possible to the public health and then make decisions that really sort of, you know, fit my family's needs. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Mike, uh, did something today. I, I found myself, I had a few extra minutes. I was just sort of wasting time. And as I do occasionally ended up on realtor.ca. Mm-hmm. And don't ask me how, as I moved around on Realtor.ca, I ended up looking at homes in Newfoundland. Uh, that that <laughs> I can't even explain it. But there was a beautiful, like 1,300 square foot little house, completely redone, on the harbor, right on the water, thirty nine thousand dollars. 
Wow. And I'm not trying to do this to start moving properties in Newfoundland, but you've moved around the country a little bit. I'm wondering with what's going on right now and the the job problems, people can't get jobs with income stopping, everything else. Could you imagine, could you see, not imagine, but could you see people suddenly deciding, you know what, that's it. I'm going to find little places like this. I don't really care where I live now. It's just got to be somewhere affordable. Nice. Could you see large exoduses to little places like this around the country or is, or are people too committed to the big cities or to the places that they're connected? Yeah. I mean, I, I think certainly, I mean, we're definitely seeing, you know, affordability uh, in housing is a major issue. I mean, we serve Halton and Hamilton and, you know, in Halton in particular, the housing costs are insane, right? I mean, if you're looking in Oakville, Berlin, oh, yeah. you know, it's impossible to afford. But frankly, Hamilton's the same way now. You know, the housing prices have gone up incredibly in the last decade. And I remember, you know, I moved here in 2004 and I think we bought our first house. Uh, we bought our first house in 2007 while I was still in my Ph.D. program. I can afford it. I can afford it. You know, my wife was working as a mental health counselor. I was still in the PhD program and we could afford a house. Now there's no way, right? There's no way. And so I think that sort of crisis in affordability, I mean, it's one of the reasons that we really need to support these kinds of system level solutions to make sure that people can stay where they are because that Newfoundland example. So I'm calling you from out in Mount Hope. I have such bad internet that when I go in, I have to go in on some days when I want to run a proper webinar, I have to go into the city. I can't get wired internet out at my property just outside of the airport in Hamilton. Huh. You know, how are we going to respond to, you know, like the global pandemic, let alone innovate as a society if we can't even provide, you know, good internet service? to people. So, you know, it's really, there's all of these things that I think, again, the pandemic in some ways is a gift. It's helping us see these kind of weaknesses and the areas that we really need to sort of address and housing affordability. It's huge. I mean, for some of the people, for some of the people on ODSP that we serve the clients, you know, they're spending 50 or 60% of their income on housing. After that, there's nothing left. There's nothing left. So you can't, you can't expect them to save for a rainy day. No, and, and in a sense, Mike, I mean, you cut the legs out a little bit, Not, I mean, not in a bad way, but you cut the legs out a little from what I was thinking because as I was looking online and I saw this house and stuff, I thought, you know, the one thing that the pandemic has taught us, many people anyway, is the ability to work remotely. I don't have to be in the office. I could literally be almost anywhere and do my job. I'm doing, I'm talking to you right now from my basement online. I could do that from Newfoundland if I really wanted to. And I'm thinking, you know, if that's the case, I I don't know what is holding a lot of people in places, in certain places, or if they would just be willing to say, you know, I can get a house in Northern Ontario or out East or somewhere really cheap. I can still do my job if I have one. Why am I staying here? Yeah. Yeah, and I think a lot of companies are asking themselves, do they need to have everybody in the office, right? Why pay for the building and the expensive real estate and all of those other things? At the same at the same token, though, I think a lot of people are also realizing how alienating that can be as well. Like, I think a lot of us, you know, as much as you can do some components of your job online, I think, you know, when it comes to things like being creative, driving innovation, really sort of 
collaborating on things. I feel like there's mo- you know, there's a lot that can be done online and a lot that can be done through Zoom. You know, I'm certainly enjoying the fact that, you know, tonight, you know, it, it's uh, Friday night and I'm, you know, I'm speaking from my yurt in the backyard and that's great. You know, there's, <laughs> that, that's pretty awesome. Um, but uh, at the same time, you know, I'm, I'm, I am missing, you know, seeing my colleagues face to face. And I think we'll see, I think, again, we'll see what, what things do we value and what things do we don't. And that's the opportunity of this pandemic is to reveal what are those things that matter and what are the things that are superfluous. Yeah, and once again, uh, first person ever to do an interview from a yurt. So we, we thank you for that. Now we've scratched that one off our list. I don't know what else is on the list of people to where they can do them from, but yurt is now covered. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, Mike, you probably know about this. I don't think many people will, uh, but there's a group, a, a, a board, a committee in Ottawa called the Patented Medicine Prices Review Board, which is kind of an arm's length committee that sets the, and caps the maximum drug companies in this country can charge for therapies. Mm-hmm. And they were supposed to be coming out with their new limits or new caps for what was going to be available in this country this week. It's now going to be next week. Here's the interesting part about this, though, because that really isn't uh, for most people. There is great fear right now among some people saying, if they are too rigid, if they come down too hard, which some people in the government are pushing them to do, drug companies are saying, we will not be launching new treatments and new medicines in this country. Therefore, a lot of Canadians might potentially not be able to get access to treatments that could save their life. It's a real conundrum. Are we better off with cheaper drug prices overall if it means losing out on new therapies that could help people, or do we want the innovation in this country and we're willing to pay more for drug prices to get it? Uh, you, you don't ask the easy questions, do you? Um, yeah. So I think, with, with, I mean, that's, that's a hard one. You know, I think it's always a balance with something like a publicly funded healthcare system. You know, we're always trying to balance out the needs of the many and the needs of the few. And, and, you know, I think innovation, while it is dri- driven by business and these kinds of economic um you know, needs of, of these companies to be able to recoup the cost of the drug development. I think people also forget how, uh, how much these companies also rely on public funded research and development um, at the universities, right? So just the incredible amount of resources that go into developing these things. So I think it always is that balance between sort of providing enough incentives for business to be able to sort of innovate and to bring these things to market and also respecting the fact that, you know, the market can't always provide for some of these things and that we really do need to sort of find some sort of balance between them. It it does make me wonder when I hear this, um, we've heard a lot since the last election, the last federal election, um, when the NDP announced that they wanted to have a national pharmacare program and the Greens said the same thing, and then the Liberals have kind of now been dragged along into that, that if that were ever to happen, how does that affect this? Because now you're talking about really one buyer, and this is the position the government was trying to make. We're going to have one buyer doing all the buying so that we can bring prices down. Well, that may work, or it may chase some of these companies away and say, yeah, but if you're trying to push our prices down so far, it's no longer worth it for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's 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 definitely a bit a difficult balance. I mean, I think 
none of us want to be in the same in the situation um, you know that that a lot of people in the United States face, right? You you hear about the stories of people coming up north to get insulin, right? And yeah. because insulin costs a hundred times more in the state, so I'm not sure if you know leaving it to the free market and open is always the solution because we've seen what happens in the United States, right? When 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 that comes down to it, so you know I think you know government always is playing a delicate balance trying to figure out what is that sweet spot. How do you how do you how do you make sure that um, that that you are not closing down the incentives for innovation while at the same time recognizing that you know some things shouldn't be left entirely to the market because lives are in, are in balance. I mean, it come, it, I mean, I think that's we're seeing that with the vaccine right now. The, the federal government has pre-ordered millions and millions and millions of, uh, you know, of, of doses of, of, of potential COVID vaccines, not even real ones yet, right? And this is to sort of make sure that we have a position in the line and that these things are funded. And, you know, arguably, this is a good thing that we're investing in that R&D. Some of these may never come into play, but, you know, it's important that we do invest in that way. Yeah, I, you know, and, and the other part of me, and that part makes sense. The other part of me says, though, if we didn't have a group that was capping these prices, would we be inspiring more groups to trying to be innovate? And would then the market, would the competition naturally drive the prices down, which is the other argument. And I, I mean, in this case, I don't know the answer because you're not going to have, I guess, um, multiple companies always necessarily creating drugs for the same thing. I think they would follow suit. I think they would copycat very quickly. We see that a lot of times, but it is, um, it, you know, it's, it's, it is such a difficult one, especially if you were one of those people who happens to have an illness or something that those innovative drugs might help with. And now those companies are not here. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's really, it's an easy argument to make on either side until you are personally caught in the middle of this thing. Yeah. Well, and it becomes more complicated for really rare diseases as well. Right. You know, I think the, you know, it's, it's one thing for something like insulin um, and maybe even for some vaccines, but when it comes to say some of the rarer diseases, you know, that's where it becomes really difficult for the market to respond because if there's only say a thousand people that are affected by an illness, right? Um, there is, no, there is no way to market that, right? Like, no. And then if there's only a thousand and you have to create a product, you're going to say, well, yeah, but you're going to have to pay for it. I mean, it's going to cost cause it costs us mm-hmm. an awful lot of money. And if they say, well, no, you can only charge X, then why bother? And, and so there's the, there's the conundrum. And, and absolutely you're right. It's it, this is a, this is the nightmare scenario, honestly, because for a country like Canada, unlike the States or India or China, where you have just such volume that you can get away with it with a country like us, it's a really Really, really tough one. Uh, you can read about that one. There's a great story in the National Post about it if people want to follow that up. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I was in the house today. My wife had the TV on. CHCH was on, as it often is, just sort of playing in the background. And I guess Gilligan's, they started showing as part of their series of old TV shows. Gilligan's Island is now on the rotation. And today may have been the first day. I'm not sure. Anyway, I bring all this up because... My wife mentioned that she had been walking by and saw they had a warning up before the show saying that some of the stuff that's in here may be racially or whatever insensitive. And this, of course, follows a story that Disney now with a number of Disney movies on the Disney Plus channel, Jungle Book, Dumbo, Peter Pan, the Aristocrats and others will be having a warning on it saying that films may carry negative portrayals of certain races and cultures. 
And we're talking with Mike Mitchelluck, uh, Vice President of Community Outreach for United Way at Halton Hamilton and a professor at McMaster. Uh, Mike, not exactly your wheelhouse, except for the fact that you have two daughters. So this is uh, Disney is probably a thing in your house. Is this mm-hmm. going to be enough? If, if, if companies like this have material that may have old fashioned portrayals, is a mm-hmm. warning going to be enough? Or with what we see of people taking down statues and demanding that people who did things in the past be eliminated from the conversation are we looking at a day when those disney movies are going to be basically banned from existence and gilligan's island and others cannot be shown anymore yeah no i mean i, I you know i think you know uh, we, we we have disney plus and you know we certainly like to make sure that we talk to our girls about all of these issues and i think you know I don't think most people who are talking about these issues are in favor of banning them. You know, history is history. And we really have to look back and really have a critical lens at, uh, at, at, at the world around us. And I think what, uh, what something like that, what a warning like that does is it opens up a conversation. And I think it's our responsibility to really sort of look at, you know, at these, these, these historic moments in time, you know, and a lot of them really problematic with a lot of really negative stereotypes and representations and have honest conversations about how these kinds of things perpetuate and really sort of um, continue in other forms in our society right now. You know, I think as an organization, you know, we really try to take that to heart in the, in the work that we do in the community we take a really strong equity and diversity lens when we're sort of looking at who we support. You know, COVID right now, when you look at the stats in Hamilton, you know, you're, you're four times as likely to die from COVID if you're, if you're black or racialized, right? You're significantly more likely to be hospitalized if you're black or racialized. You know, these are very real um, sort of manifestations of these kind of historic pieces, and we need to deal with those things. And so if it can open up a conversation, you know, I, I think that's a really good thing. Look, I, I don't I don't object to the warning on there. Um, you know, I think that's, uh, we do live in different times. And I would hate to think that, and I, we've talked about this before, I've talked about this in the show before, I hate to think that any art, or any um, thing that was created in a different time immediately has to be obliterated because mm-hmm. times have changed. But there are an awful lot of people, Mike, that, that that do believe that, that that would say that it's not enough just to take down the statue of Sir John A. Macdonald. You must not be teaching him because that's colonialism in, in history class and we should be teaching other things. I think that I really do believe that there is coming a day, I believe that there's coming a day very soon when these warnings for a lot of people will not be enough and the demands will be, you cannot show them anymore. They, so the jungle book as a Disney classic, that will be gone. It won't be on Disney plus. You won't be able to buy it. Uh, and if you show it to someone, heaven forbid, uh, you're going to be accused of all kinds of things. I, I don't see nearly that this is going to be the, the end of this. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I do think, mo- you know, most of the people that I've certainly had conversations about this, the kind of people who are trying to advocate for these kinds of uh, pieces, they're really focused more on the dialogue and on really sort of making sure that, you know, that those, those stories are counterbalanced. It's not about erasing them. And, and you know, certainly there's people who, who, who might advocate that, but I think for most people, you know, what they're more concerned about is making sure that those, 
that those stories are balanced with 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 the with with those with the other stories that have not been told, right? Mm. And 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 I think it's it's when you sort of it's not about you know tearing down the statue of John A. Macdonald. It's about putting up the statue of Louis Riel, and it's about telling the story between the two of them, and ensuring that those indigenous cultures and those the stories that have been kind of oppressed over time are given the same platform, and 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 that we recognize that those things it, it, they're not mutually exclusive. You know what happened in the past happened, and it echoes. But you're a professor. I mean, you're a university professor and we know that at universities, even at McMaster, there have been mm-hmm. new rules that have had to be put in to say, listen, you can't just shout someone down because you disagree with them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what? You can't be spouting racism, but you also can't just immediately cancel anybody. How do you how do you even tell your students, you know, it's OK to have a point to hear a point of view that might not be the same or to learn about something that you may find offensive but let's have that discussion instead of just canceling it. How do you, how do you teach that? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's a really good question. You know, I think I, so I teach a sustainability class and, you know, I'll often have some of my favorite conversations are the ones where I get students who really challenge those issues in a way that frankly I disagree with. Right. But I don't see my role as being someone who is supposed to shut that down and push my agenda. I see my role as sort of honing the critical thinking skills of those individuals and trying to sort of show them the, the sort of the wide variety of ideas that are out there so that they can really start to understand and question. And I think this is honestly one of the best reasons for, you know, we've, we've, we talk a lot about STEM, but, you know, we at the United Way support a lot of programs around uh, arts and around getting kids exposed to art. And I think the best reason for that is because it allows, it allows kids to sort of develop some of those critical thinking skills. It allows them to express themselves. It lets them sort of focus in more on the process and less on the end. And so for me, you know, when I'm teaching a class, I like to lean into that controversy and do it in a respectful way so that we can, you know, there's, there's, there's nothing wrong with disagreeing with someone. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. So um, just before we get into some issues with United Way and charity and that kind of thing, I did want to get to one more thing tonight. And uh, this is another, uh, this is a head scratcher for me. And I just read this story before we came on the air tonight. And we've all heard that um, the federal government has announced that they are going to be putting a ban on plastics uh, coming up very, very soon because they're not easily recyclable and can't really do much with them. And they go into landfills and all the rest and they go into oceans. That's what we keep hearing. But Mike, you and I for years now, for decades now, have been faithfully, probably, if you're like most people, faithfully separating mm-hmm. these plastics and put the, putting them into our blue recycle bins and sending them off to wherever, believing that these things were being handled properly, only to learn much more recently that, no, we don't have the capacity to do anything with these except to ship them to China. How, how has this little detail eluded us so much so that we're all now caught off guard and didn't realize this was happening? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, I, I mean, I teach a sustainability class, so this is right up my alley. You know, we actually were talking about this the other day um, in the class, and this is really sort of another one of these examples where, you know, I think the, the kind of economics of recycling don't play out the way we thought, um, that a lot of the data that we were sort of 
given to us was really sort of misconstrued, right? So we were told the data by who? The data given to governments by companies, or the data given to the people by the government? No, by by the companies to people, and 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 you know, sort of around what is recyclable and how much of it. Right now, the stuff, uh, from what I understand, it's less than thirty percent. Um, yeah, that, yeah. That gets that gets recycled. That's the um, number. And yeah, and it's so it's really you know, and globally it's even worse. In Canada, it's a little bit better. Um, but you know, it's it's really difficult to recycle a lot of these things. And when we recycle them, here's the other thing. I mean, when we recycle a lot of these things, I mean, we're downgrading them, right? So the irony is, you know, we've created this incredible product, plastic, which can last forever in some cases. And we use it for takeout, right? And I think this is the idea behind the government where they're saying, you know, why are we using something that was designed to last forever for single use? It just doesn't make any sense, right? And, 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 and I think a lot of people, I think a lot of people would agree with you on that. My, mm-hmm. my um, sort of shock on this is that if we've known about this, someone has had to know that all the time and all the plastic we've put into our blue bin is not doing what we believed it to be doing. Why has it taken so long for this to become common knowledge to people? Why has it been something that we, that we were, that was kept from us intentionally, or did we truly believe Did our governments and our leaders and our, whomever our municipalities truly believe this was being done properly? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it, you know, we've, we've, you know, I think municipalities have have worked hard to recycle what they can, um, but they're also accepting things from a, a, a from a waste stream that is really complicated, right? Like, and you get all these new products that are coming out year after year after year, and they're trying to deal with it as best as they can, and and you know, we're, you know, I think in the same way that, you know, in the 60s and the 50s, we were finding out about cigarettes and around the danger of those, we're kind of facing that same moment right now with plastics. I I, I realize this is childish, but there is a part of me that wants to go out. Have you ever, I don't know if you've ever had that sticker slammed onto your blue box because you'd had something in there that was not supposed to be there. And they, they love to give you the, we can't take this. I want to go out and stick a sticker on a recycling truck as it comes by to go, you didn't, you know, you're doing the same thing, only yeah. on a much broader scale. I, 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 maybe I won't be that childish to do that one, yeah. but anyway. But I mean, it's, um, it's, a, it's, it's a positive move that the government is making, say, realizing that some things can't be recycled, and like like plastic bags, right? Like they can't be recycled. Yeah, I, look, I, I say I don't, I don't have a great objection to it. I just, I, I'm just trying to figure out how it is that we've gone all this time believing that we were doing something good for the world, only to find out that we were doing absolutely nothing. And we would have made no difference if we just thrown our plastic bottles into the garbage and thrown it out the normal way. It just, it's frustrating, if nothing else. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let me jump over because you are, as I say, the Vice President of Community Impact at the United Way of Halton and Hamilton. It's a, um, it's, I mean, we're in a huge, important time right now. Um, you're working towards a target of $10 million uh, to be raised to go towards COVID recovery. It's a very, as I say, it's a very important time for this kind of mm-hmm. thing. But we have heard, Mike, that in since, especially since the COVID thing, because people have lost jobs or their income is down or whatever, that raising money for charity has become immensely more difficult. Is that what you guys are finding? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, 
in a normal year, it's difficult, right? I mean, Canadians are generous people, and we, you know, we we definitely like to, you know, like to give. But I think, you know, now a, we're just seeing a lot of people. You know, Hamilton has faced. You know, we've had poverty rates that have hovered around sort of twelve percent for for decades, right? And a lot of people have lived on the margin. Even those people who were doing well were often, you know, one two paychecks away from, you know losing their ability to to pay for their for their housing or for their food and so a lot of people were living on the margin and what we're seeing right now is a lot of people people who are donating to us people who are giving to us who are now needing the services that they Mm. were helping fund and that shift is going to make it really challenging for us to hit that target and to be clear that $10 $10 million, that's what we need just to keep the services going that are currently funded. We've, um, thanks to the, you know, t- thanks to the support of the federal government, we've allocated another close to $4 million in emergency relief funds in the last six months. And that's just to help people pivot and go online and hire new staff and adapt to the fact that now there's no volunteers out there, right? and that they need to deliver things to people's homes and all the changes that have happened. That $10 million is just to make sure that the charities can keep their lights on at last year's levels, right? And it's and it sounds like you're getting a double whammy because if you've got oh, people who yeah. in the past have contributed who now can't and need the services, not only have you lost the revenue they donated, but now you have to give revenue back that they would have donated. That's right. And that's why it's so important. And, you know, I implore all of your listeners, if you are fortunate enough to still have a job, to be sitting from your house or your apartment or your yurt um, and, and, and be comfortable and, and to, be, to have an income, you know, this is the time to dig deep and to look out to your community and say, I can do without. The money that you have saved not eating out, the money you have saved not going on vacations, this is the time to sort of be generous and, and, and give because those so many people that rely on our programs, like you said, it's a double whammy. The people that we're providing for our programs have lost their jobs, are now relying on those programs. And we need to find a way to be able to support them so that they don't fall through those cracks and so that they don't become sort of embedded in those cycles of poverty and despair and, and, and sort of, you know, and, and, and aren't able to. And, and a lot of our programs, like, you can't adjust some of them, right? So for a lot of people, they might have been in a drug, uh, you know, a drug treatment program. That doesn't work so well online all the time, right? So mm-hmm. you might have been doing well in, in recovery. Add all this stress to it. It's hard to cope. And yeah, I was talking, and I'm going to be writing about it in the in the spec next week, so I, I won't say who it is right now, but I was talking to someone running another charity in town that is really, really teetering right now. And the big problem they have is, and, and I'm guessing you would have as well, is you can only tap into your corporate and big sponsors so many times before people say, listen, I, I just can't do it again. I, I've, I've given all I can do. There's only so many of those corporations and and people that can be hit up again and again and again to give. That's right. No, absolutely. And and so many of the charities rely on things like events, right? So we run golf tournaments and, and all of these sort of events that bring in dollars, right? We can't do those anymore. And so how do you raise that awareness? And let's 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 be honest, people are zoomed out, right? 
people are sick of sitting in front of the screen. They don't want an online sort of event. It's hard. It's really hard to get their attention now. And so, like you said, and, you know, you can only go back to the well so many times before it goes dry. It really does with what you're describing. And I think you're bang on about the fact that people are tapped out, not just with money, but they're, they're bored of the same thing of just looking at the same thing on a screen. It, 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 the, the groups, the charities that may be able to do okay right now, maybe the ones who have the really creative people behind them who figure out some way to stand out from the crowd. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Which, which, you know, which I don't know that a charity is necessarily supposed to be a, a giant marketing agency or advertising agency, but it may have to be. Yeah. But the, the thing is, Scott, you know, we've, we've really told charities to not invest in that stuff. Like one of the things that we found right away when all of our funded agencies were having to pivot from, from COVID, one of the things that we realized right away is that all of them were running with, you know, 10 year old computers. And with almost no IT budget. And so when COVID hit and all of them were like, oh, we said, oh, you need to go online. How do you, how do, you do that? And then when you say, okay, well, then you go online and service your clients. Well, what if your, cl- your clients don't have computers and phones? So we had to make investments in the charities to be able to build up their own IT infrastructure and then we had to also say, well, what about the people receiving those services? So we had to partner with organizations like Wesley Urban Ministries to be able to say, you have to give technology to your clients. And they also need access to Wi-Fi. Like, all of these things just peter out. And so when you squeeze the charitable sector and you, and you try to, you, you keep telling them, be as efficient as possible, as efficient as possible, what's left? And what about resilience? How do you make sure that we can survive these kind of shocks? Because that's what we are. We're a safety net. We're here to catch people when they fall. And we need to make sure that the charitable sector, that there aren't many gaps in that safety net. And one other thing that just came to mind as you were talking about that is uh, every year or every once in a while, we hear reports on charities. And one of the things that oftentimes gets people to really blanch is if the percentage of money given per dollar going to administration is really high or going to the charity itself, as opposed to the people, they, people want to give money where as close to the full dollar or every dollar they give is going right to the people. And yet if you've got terribly old equipment and stuff and you have to update, well, there's no way to get around the fact that you can't give every dollar to the people. That is admin. I mean, admin is people. It's the staff. It is, it is the investment in your professional development. It is the investment in your technology. It is the investment in your organization to be able... It, it is a rainy day fund. Like, all of that is what we call overhead. And it's a bit of a myth, right? It's a bit of a myth. We try to push and push and push for this kind of efficiency. And, of course, we want, we want charities to be efficient, Right. We want charities to be, to be able to service the people. But do we want to take a short view of that? Or do we want to take the long view of that? And that's one of the benefits of investing in the United Way. Because one of the things that we do is we really try to make sure that the charitable sector as a whole is really improving in ways that really end up servicing as many clients as possible. If somebody is listening right now and wants to donate to United Way, Mike, how, how do they do that? Yeah, so it's, it's our website, 
uh, www.uwhh.ca. You know, we're, we're, this is going to be the hardest year I think we've ever faced in terms of getting donations. Um, this is going to be, I think, the most important year, right? Because right now, the, you know, right now, the, the best guess that we have is that, you know, a good 20% of charities out there are at risk of closing by the end of the year. Wow. That's, wow. That's yeah, terrible. I did not know that number. Yeah, it's terrible, right? It's, and like, you have to remember that, like, you can't just start these charities back up. They rely on their networks, on the relationships they've built with people, on the relationships they've built with each other. And it's so important to, and, and, and again, that's why it's so important to invest in an organization like the United Way, because we support that network. We make sure that those charities are collaborating, that they're working together, that we're looking for those gaps. And if 20% of those charities fail, it's not just the people that are going to not be serviced by them. It's all of that capacity, all of that ability to react, all of those relationships that are going to disappear. You can't just turn that back on overnight. Uh, something to take to heart for sure. That 20% number is uh, is a little stunning when you think of how many people are affected by each one of those. Uh, www.uwhh.ca if you want to contribute. Uh, Mike, listen, it's been a lot of fun. You've been great. Uh, love having you on here. Um, hope we'll do it again. Hope you come back again and do this again sometime. We'd love to have you. Anytime. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.